Romans chapter three, beginning in verse nine, Paul writes, what then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In chapter three, Paul asks and answers a series of questions. What are the advantages of being Jewish or experiencing circumcision, he talks about in verses one and two. The answer, of course, many advantages, the most impressive advantage being entrusted with the oracles of God and the revelation of the scripture. The second question was, will Israel's unfaithfulness make void or nullify God's promises? And the answer, of course, no, though everyone in the world might be found to be a liar. God is true. And Paul quotes David in Psalm 51, 4 to prove the point. The next question Paul asks is, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness, how could it possibly be fair to punish us? Paul's answer, this is the accusation that was even leveled against him. Some people suggested that they would do evil, that good may come of it. And Paul says, if you continue along that way of reasoning, if you continue down that road of logic, that the more we sin, the better off we are. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned in verses five through eight. And so the next question, the question we're looking at this morning The question and answer is in verses 9 through 20. It will serve as the charge of sin by God against all mankind. And the question begins with, well, are Jews better off than Gentiles? Do the Jewish people, even though the Gentiles are really bad, are the Jews at least a little bit better And with that question, Paul describes the cancer of sin, how it's infected the whole human race. And what follows is a chilling description of the depraved human conscience in verses 10 and 11. No one desires to follow God. The human conscience as well as the human character is depraved in verse 12. All have left the path of good and have become worthless Conscience, character, and even our conversation is depraved in verses 13 and 14. Our talk looking more like 
an open grave in verse 13 or poison from a deadly snake at the end of verse 13 and verse 14. Paul's attention then turns to human conduct in verses 15, 16, 17 and 18. After presenting these terrible facts, Paul reaches this conclusion. Both Jew and Gentile stand equally condemned in verse 9. Both Jew and Gentile stand equally accused before God in verses 19 through 20. This might be very a bleak message. If it weren't for the reality of the hope that a real Jesus will really show up and make things different. As a matter of fact, in verse nine, look what it says. What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Paul writes, there are no preferred people. There are no special cases. There are no exceptions. Every human being is a sinner. And by the way, this is the first mention of sin in its noun form in the book of Romans. In chapter 2, verse 12, it talks about people sinned. And in chapter 3, verse 7, it talked about sinners. But now Paul is going to bring in the subject of sin. D.G. Bloch, in, in the book Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, writes, quote, In the biblical perspective, sin is not only an act of wrongdoing, but it's a state of alienation from God, unquote. In the Bible, sin is much more than just breaking the rules. It's much more than just violating the boundaries. It's much more than just simply ignoring authority. Sin is the rupture of personal relationship with the personal God. And the most tragic aspect of sin is its ability to destroy fellowship and disrupt relationship and impede affection. Sin is more than just simply an act of cosmic treason. It's the bent and twisted nature of human beings to resist God or ignore God. And again, perhaps the most important thing about sin is not simply what it is, but what it does. And that becomes part of the point that you have to grab a hold of and understand. Sin makes fellowship with God Impossible. There were a group of kids in a Sunday school class who were very, very young. And the teacher began talking about sin and he, she talked about sins of commission. Those are the things that you do. And she talked about sins of omission. Those are the things you should have done, but you didn't do. And so she she asked the class, does anyone know what a sin of omission is? And one little kid raised his hand and he goes, yeah, those are the sins that you should have done when you had the opportunity. We laugh, but that's that's the depraved mind talking in one sweeping statement. Paul describes the character of the verdict sin. That we need not look anywhere else to find the answer to pain and suffering and evil in the world. And the domain of the verdict under 
Human beings are not merely sinners in name only. Sin is more than a category or a classification. Sin brings with it conquest. It brings dominion. It's more than simply a synonym for wickedness or evil. Its symptoms are the symptoms of a disease. Sin is a great power that controls, manipulates, and it cannot be escaped simply by exercising free will. Paul speaks of the extent of the verdict. All, all people, every person without regard to time and space or race or culture or condition, the indictment, the charges, all men are under sin. The big question that everybody has as they're reading the passage is, can Paul sustain the charge? Is this charge justified? Must we, are we required to label every single human being who's ever lived sinner? In order to do this, Paul has to demonstrate that all people have a real problem. That they are truly depraved. Now, theologians may argue the nature and the extent of that depravity. They use terms like total depravity or complete depravity. But what does that mean? What does it mean when I use the term depravity? Depravity means bad, ruined, wicked. Depravity means bad, but it doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be, but that depravity serves as the basis for disqualification for self-salvation. In other words, let me put it to you another way. Left in our sin condition, human beings will never become what we were created to experience. Fellowship with God, relationship with God. We will never experience the fullness and the richness of God's blessing. And that's why we sing what we sang. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It brings with it mercy and forgiveness and hope. We will die apart from God and apart from God's grace and mercy that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never experience the fullness and richness of God's blessing. We will die as sin-infested, sin-ridden objects of God's unrelenting wrath. Jeremy Taylor, a Puritan, wrote, quote, A man is first startled by sin, then it becomes pleasing, then easy, then delightful, then frequent, then habitual, then confirmed. The man is impenitent, then obstinate, and then he is damned. Bleak. And so Paul writes in verse 10, the depraved human conscience, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Look what Paul cites as evidence. He doesn't just simply cite the human experience. He doesn't just go, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, look around you. He says it is written. Why is it true that there's none righteous? Because the Bible says so. Well, what about the person who doesn't believe the Bible? Paul quotes 
the scripture to make his case. Why? Because even for the person who doesn't believe the Bible, does the Bible remain true? Does it still remain the source of God's communication? Yes. Does it reveal the truth about God and the truth about man? Yes. Paul quotes scripture to make his case. We might paraphrase the verse. It's Psalm 14, verse 1. There is not a single righteous person. The depth and breadth of sinfulness is defined in that single word, none. It's repeated four times, verse 10. None righteous. Twice in verse 11. Once in verse 12. None righteous. None righteous. And by the way, remember what righteous means. Righteous means the ability to stand before God accepted. What Paul is basically saying is that apart from God and apart from Christ, apart from grace and apart from mercy, apart from the gospel, no one can stand before God on their own and say, I'm just fine. I'm fine. I'm fine the way that I am. There's an old Yiddish saying. A scab is a scab is a scab even when you put honey in it. You can take an open sore and place honey inside of it, but it still remains a scab. Paul continues to engage the reader in a debate. All mankind is guilty before a just and a holy God. Heathens, heretics, Hebrews. But there is a person, I can almost hear you whispering it, surely there must be some righteous. Surely there must be someone somewhere. Surely there must be some good person somewhere. Again, it depends on the standard you employ. If you by good you mean better than me, it's easy to find that person. But I'm not the measure. You might even find someone better than you. But you're not the measure. You see, when Paul writes, there is none righteous, no, not one, as he quotes the scripture. Paul uses an absolute and an impeccable standard, God's revelation, according to the law and according to the Lord. He's using a standard and the standard is the absolute perfection of the self-existent God and in the revelation of that God in the law as he communicates what constitutes right thinking and right behavior. And so Paul will argue that sin has infected and effected everyone. And so he writes in verse 11, there's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. Paul quotes Psalm 14 too. There's no one who seeks after God. And again, certainly there must be someone who understands and seeks after God. There must be some, the person will argue, well, I was searching for God. I remember when I was a kid, I, I, th- I would lay in bed and I would think about, I wonder if there's a God. I wonder if he or she is up there. I wonder what God is like. I wonder what God wants. I wonder why God put me here. So when Paul says there's none who seeks after God, it can't mean there's no one who's never asked the philosophical question, Where is God or what is God? I think that what Paul is saying 
is that there's never been a single person who has sought God the way they ought to. With perfect motive. In utter, inexplicable perfection. Men know more about numbers and they know more about stars and they know more about math than they know about the God who created the heavens and the earth. Human beings desperately long to understand the facts of reality and they are unwilling to face the hardest questions of all. Why is there a universe? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how do you explain the way that I think and the way that I act and the way that I speak? If fallen, depraved human beings are left alone without God, without grace, no one would seek God. I think what Paul is basically saying is that it is the work of God and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God that would prompt anyone to even ask the question. Where are you? Who are you? There was a young man who once asked a preacher, preacher, you say that unsaved people carry a weight of sin. I feel nothing. How heavy is sin? Is it 10 pounds? Is it 80 pounds? And the preacher replied by asking the young man, if you laid a 400 pound weight on a corpse, what would it feel? The young man said, It would feel nothing. Dead people feel nothing. The preacher concluded that spirit, too, is indeed dead, which feels no load of sin or is indifferent to its burden or apathetic to its presence for the person who says, I feel nothing. You feel no conviction. You feel no conviction whatsoever. You've never carried the burden of sin. You've never carried the burden of guilt. You've never carried the burden of pain. You have no idea of its pressure upon the surface of your soul. How is it that we are content to accumulate facts and reluctant to embrace faith? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the conviction of sin comes by the law and it comes by the Holy Spirit. When Paul says that there's none who seek after God, he is not attempting to suggest that human beings don't make inquiry. That they don't ask questions. Paul knows that human beings are hopelessly and incurably religious. Religion is man's search for God and Christianity is God's search for man. Christianity is when people stop asking questions and God starts asking the question, where are you? How can I find you? How can I get through to you? The true fact of human history is that we are lost 
and God has revealed himself in creation and conscience, but he has mostly revealed himself in Christ. And so he goes from the depraved conscience to the depraved character. Look at verse 12. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Again, Paul continues to sing the psalmist passage. All have gone astray from God. All mankind has become corrupt. There is no one who lives a good life. Not even a single person. Psalm 14.3 Once again, the person, the critic, the skeptic, the person would argue, has Paul overreached? Has he overstated his case? Surely there's someone who does right. What about social work? What about charity? What about Mother Teresa? How can you say that building hospitals or digging wells is not good? And Paul isn't even for a moment suggesting that helping the needy and helping the poor and digging wells and constructing hospitals, all of these things are good things. But Paul isn't speaking of those things. Paul is speaking of those people who do those things in the hope that the accumulation of those good deeds will merit acceptance. On the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, we come to God and we come to God on the basis of what Jesus has done or we come on the basis of we what we have done. Now, imagine the person who comes to God on the day of judgment on the basis of what they have done. And they said, I graduated from high school. I only managed to get one D and that was in citizenship in Spanish. Because I brought a switchblade. And I got caught. Oh, wait a minute. I went to college. And I graduated with honors. I went into the ministry. I read the Bible and I taught the Bible and I planted churches and I did this and I did that and I did this. And you might have an even more wonderful story. You gave hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. You built orphanages. You provided help and hope and ministry and outreach to any number of people. And you think that on the basis of what you have done throughout the course of your life should merit acceptance. Are people capable of doing good things? Yes. But never profoundly. And never consistently. And never in such a way that it will undo the tragedy of sin and personal failure. Because you might think that your sin or your failure can be exonerated on the basis of the good things that you have done. And there are literally billions of people who hold to the belief that if I put my good deeds on one side and my evil deeds on the other, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God of necessity must accept me. But Paul says, no, Paul says that the entire person 
is controlled and dominated and governed by sin. The human mind is controlled by sin. None understands in verse 11. The human heart is controlled by sin. No one seeks after God in verse 11. The human will is controlled by sin. There's none who does good in verse 12. Dr. Addison Leash used to use this illustration to help conceptualize the pervasiveness of sin. He said, imagine, if you will, that sin had a color. And it was the color blue. And then you would begin to understand because your hair would turn blue and your skin would turn blue and your eyes would turn blue and your nails would turn blue and everything about you would become blue. Now imagine that person swearing that they're red. Or they're white. Or they're some other color. That's the idea. Turgenev, the Russian poet, wrote, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it's wicked and terrible and repulsive. And then he talks about the depraved human conversation. That it's not just the mind, it's not just the heart, it's not just the will, but the mind controlled by sin and the heart controlled by sin and the will controlled by sin must of necessity speak. Look what it says in verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Paul again quotes Psalm chapter 5 verse 9. Men's throats are like an open tomb. Their speech has been Consistently deceitful. Psalm 140 verse 3. Their conversation flows from poisonous lips. Paul argues that sinful conduct proceeds from sinful character and constitutes a kind of anatomy and physiology of evil. The throat is described as an open tomb containing the unsealed decomposition of a rotting corpse. Here's the image. Open your mouth. Bad breath, worse. Have you ever smelled a dead body? I hope not. But if you've been unfortunate enough to have to, it's odor is unforgettable. It is so bad that just the presence of death, as a body begins to decompose, it occupies the atmosphere and then it begins to attach itself to everything around it. And so Paul describes the throat as an open tomb concealing the decomposition of a corpse. And then he talks about the character of the tongue as deceitful. Think of everything said by everyone. This is the point that Paul begins to make for the person who says, I'm fine. I'm basically a good person. And the Lord says, I am going to enter your mind and your heart and now your speech into evidence. In other words, the human life becomes the very evidence that's entered in order to condemn us 
He says the poison of asps is under their lips. The asp is also called the adder. It's a it's a poisonous snake. Some of you are familiar. There's this small poison sack. It's concealed right at the root of the tongue. And we mostly know that snakes fangs are like hypodermic needles that pierce the flesh. Many of you know that this poisonous sack attaches itself to the teeth. And when the snake delivers its blow and it delivers a toxic serum by through a hypodermic means, it then enters the bloodstream. The idea is that it delivers its toxic venom to the unsuspecting or reluctant host and snake bites take two forms, slow working and fast working. When I was growing up in the Mojave Desert, we had rattlesnakes. And some of them were your garden variety rattlesnake, diamondback rattlesnake. And then they had one particular kind of snake. It's called the Mojave Green. It's deadliest when it's very, very small. When I was young, one of those Mojave Greens bit one of our pets And we found the pet almost completely decomposed in back of the washing machine. It had been bitten by the snake and then it crawled back in and it started the process of decomposition. Here's the idea. Some victims will respond to special serums. Others will die a painful death. What all of them have in common is that it delivers something so toxic. That it's inescapable. Paul is using that image to describe the speech of human beings. Have you ever said something that you wish to God you could take back? It was so painful. It was so hurtful. It was so unthinking. Paul simply points to that as proof that there's something wrong in the mind and there's something wrong in the heart and there's something wrong in the will. Look what it says in verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. What does he mean by that? What he means is that the constant conversation of humanity is wait till I get to heaven. I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. I'm going to ask God why he did this and why he did that and why he did this and why he did that. And of course, Paul says, no, your speech is what's going to be entered into as evidence. And then he talks about the depraved human conduct. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It's not good enough that you just simply think about it. That some people are willing to even act on it. Isaiah 59, 7, their feet are swift to carry them on missions of murder. Human beings no longer have to run to kill. We can destroy from the comfort and convenience of a computer console. We can launch missiles and drones and weapons of mass destruction. This week I was reading of a town in Colorado that's issuing hunting licenses against drones. Isn't that great? Yeah, you laugh, but it's true. 
See, we're Americans still, aren't we? Is there something about being an American where you say, you know, I think I'm fundamentally opposed to governments using military systems to spy on its citizens? Are you good with that or you're not good with that? Yeah, many people go, I'm not good with that. But here's part of the point. Human beings, given the opportunity to act on their deeply held convictions, will. And so Paul writes, destruction and misery are in their ways. Isaiah 59, 7, they leave a trail of ruin and misery. Isaiah 59, 8, they have never known how to make Peace, verse 17, and the way of peace they have not known. He's quoting Isaiah 59, 8. They have never known how to make peace. And remember, peace is more than just the absence of war. Peace is a quality of the mind and the heart. And so Paul is arguing, don't you understand why human beings can never experience peace? Because in their mind and in their heart and in their conduct and in their conversation, they have never known peace. So how can we know peace? How can we sue for peace? Paul writes, the presence of sin guarantees the absence of peace. And so the person who says, but I want peace. I want to experience peace. The Bible says, therefore, In Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's in chapter 5, but I just couldn't wait to tell you. Will Durant wrote in Lessons from History, quote, In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have experienced no war. During World War II, it was estimated that it took $225,000 to kill one enemy soldier. We wage war at great price. Paul writes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Once again, he's quoting Psalm 36, verse 1, where the psalmist writes, they have no respect for God. And again, when it says there is no fear of God before their eyes, it doesn't mean that you look at God and with a terrifying glance, you realize that he is the awesome king who can put to death everyone who he wants to. That's not the point. It's the point of a reverential awe. And so when he says there is no fear of God before their eyes, what he is in effect saying is that the vast majority of people refuse to retain God in their thinking. Remember, he's already talked about that in the earlier chapter. And so there are people who don't want to think about God. People in the real world out there. That's why they're so disturbed when you show up. Because when you show up and you want to talk about God, they go, oh, here he comes again. Here she comes again. She wants to talk about God. 
She wants to talk about his mercy and his grace and his love. He wants to talk about how wonderful it is to have experienced the grace and the love and the truth that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And remember, in their wickedness and their sin, they want to reject God and not retain God. And so Paul says, there's no holy terror about the inspiring God. This is a sweeping statement. They have no respect for God. That means they don't retain him in their thinking. They don't trust him. They don't respect him. They don't have affection for him. They won't submit to him and they won't embrace him. My child doesn't want to go to church. Of course he doesn't. The little sinner. I, I just tease. I'm actually not teasing. Now all of a sudden it becomes perfectly clear. I don't want to have to confront my sin and I don't want to have to deal with my problem and I don't want to have to address my sinful thinking and my sinful speaking. Imagine God wheels in the body of humanity and subjects it to its perfect judgment. God's tools aren't limited to the visible bands of light, the things we see with our eyes. He takes a total snapshot of all of humanity with his supernatural MRI. By that, I mean God's mighty revealing integrity. He takes this shot. He knows everything about everything. Let's look at the MRI. Universal unrighteousness in verse 10. Ignorance and independence toward God in verse 11. Off track, wayward, wandering, unprofitable, bereft of goodness, verse 12. Man's throat rotten, tongue deceitful, lips venomous in verse 13. Mouth full of swearing, verse 14. Feet bent on murder, verse 15. Leaves trouble and destruction wherever he goes, in verse 16. Doesn't know how to make peace, in verse 17. Has no regard for God, in verse 18. And now imagine you come and you say, what's wrong with the patient? What's right with the patient? And so Paul concludes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God like an attorney who cites case law to make his point. He hammers home the only conclusion that a sane and reasonable person can draw. The whole world is guilty before God. Wait. Wait a minute. Objection, Your Honor. There are still people who want to argue their case that every mouth may be stopped. Paul writes, the accusation has been made and substantiated. The very law that the Jewish people boast in, that they're caretakers of, that they think made them superior to the Gentiles, condemns them. 
The Lord gave the law to Israel through Moses and the law wasn't given as a panacea or as a solution to all of human problems. The condemnation of the law rests on those who depend upon the law. Let me help you think this through. When a scientist wants to do research on an animal or a vegetable or a mineral, when a scientist wants to do research on the stars in the sky, they'll take a representative sample God takes a representative sample of humanity, Israel. He gives them the law. He watches the result. He finds Israel a failure and correctly applies the information to the host of humanity. Here's my question to you. God, through Moses, gives Israel the law. Did they keep the law? No. If God gave the law to the Mayans, to the Aztecs, to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, to the Australians, to the Aboriginal people groups, go from A in Albania to Z in Zanzibar, Mozambique. No, that's M. I'll come up with a Z name if you give me enough time. Zimbabwe. Go from Albania to Zimbabwe and all of the people groups that are represented under every letter of the alphabet. Which one of them would have wound up keeping the law? That's the right answer. And so. He finds Israel a failure. And he correctly applies that information. To the whole host of humanity. McDonald uses the illustration of a health inspector. Imagine you take a test tube and you are testing a well and you find the well polluted. Or or imagine, again, you, you take a water sample and you find that the sample is polluted and then you proceed to pronounce the whole well polluted. That's exactly what Paul does. Paul explains that when the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. And what exactly is the law saying? Jew and Gentile lawbreakers. What are the mouths of the multitude saying? We're fine. We are fine. Look, I have a religion and I have my way of thinking. I I don't need God and I don't need Christ and I don't need the gospel. I, I can stand before God without Jesus and without the gospel. And so he says in verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In a sense, this will serve as Paul's closing argument. In what sense? Paul's charges are directed to the person who continues to hold out hope. For the person who continues to say people are basically good. And they can be justified by their own good deeds. They can be justified by knowing the law and keeping the law and being a good person. But the law was not given to justify people, but to produce the knowledge of sin. Look what it says. Not the knowledge of salvation. But the knowledge of sin. Read it for yourself. Let me ask you just the most pointed question possible. Do you understand the difference between a straight line And a crooked line. If you've ever seen a straight line and you've ever seen a crooked line, you know the difference. 
We can use a mirror to determine whether or not we have a dirty face. But have you ever tried to use a mirror to wash your face? No, we need soap and water for that. We can use a thermometer to take our temperature. But what happens if you swallow the thermometer? Will that make your fever go away? The law is a moral mirror. It's a moral thermometer. It condemns, but it can't convert. It challenges, but it can't change. It can point the finger of condemnation, but it can't give you a finger to lift you out of your condition. The law is good when it's used to produce the conviction of sin. But it's useless as a savior from sin. No wonder Luther said its function is not to justify but to terrify. So what then? The only real solution is Jesus. Sinners can't save sinners. Dead people can't save dead people. The only way sinners can receive resurrection life is by turning to the source of resurrection life. And this is why we constantly invite people to not just simply turn from their sin. But to turn to the Savior. This is why we invite people to know Him and to love Him and to trust Him. And the best time to do that is now. The Bible says that the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But is there an end to patience? In spite of God's not wishing for any to perish. Will some, will some continue in the facade and the charade? Will they lay their head on a pillow and say, I'm fine just the way that I am. I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I don't need the gospel. You know, it takes about two years for a kid to learn how to talk. And then it takes about 60 years to learn how to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Paul comes to the end of his argument. And he basically says. Once you understand the true condition of your heart. And your mind. And your circumstances. When you do an honest assessment of what you think about all the time and the decisions that you make and the words that you speak and the things that you do. You'll come to the conclusion that there's something horribly, terribly wrong. The big question is, what will you do with that information? You know, again, it wasn't the threat of hell That brought me to a place of submission. It was the possibility. That God could forgive somebody like me. Paul's answer. That you're going to be justified by faith. But that comes next week. Oh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray. For that person 
who continues to defend their sin as weakness or inability or ignorance. Lord, we pray for the person who's still talking about what a good person they are and the righteous deeds that they've done. Lord, we pray and invite them to stand silent just for a moment before God and allow the voice of their own conscience to speak, the voice of their own conversation. And the voice of their own conduct. Lord, we allow them to hear the truth about their circumstance and the solution to the problem of sin. Friendship, relationship, grace, mercy. Lord, if we can't become righteous by keeping your law, then how can we become righteous? And Lord, we know the answer. It's to fully and finally and forever make Jesus the satisfying solution to the problem of personal sin. That it's Jesus, his life, his love, his ministry, his grace, his mercy, his presence, his gospel that makes me new. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's never made the decision to turn from sin and to turn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that they would do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.